Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Eras, and joining me for this next installment of Worldview Wednesday is Dr. Joe Boot and Nathan Oblak. Good to have you guys. Our subject is the, uh, the history of democracy and tracing the roots and ideas of what counts as conservatism and liberalism. And for today, I wanted to, uh, to bring in something that's uh, so close to home in Ontario to start to kick off our discussion. So this comes from uh, Rebel News. So about, about two weeks ago, uh, Jim and Belinda Karalias they declared their intentions to start a new conservative party for Ontario. It's called the New Blue Party. And Jim and Belinda, they're a husband and wife in the Cambridge area. Jim's been active in the federal conservative party for quite some time. Belinda's the member of provincial parliament for Cambridge. And she was actually elected as the conservative party candidate, but just this summer uh, was forcibly removed from caucus for not voting the party line on Bill 195. And Bill 195 just to uh, place all of this in context, this is a bill that gave the Ontario government the ability to extend some of the power that had been granted to it from the Emergency Measures Act. Belinda had issues with the level of unchecked control that, uh, that this bill gave to our elected officials. She couldn't support it. And as a result, uh, she was ousted by uh, her party, from her party. So Belinda is currently representing the people of Cambridge at the Ontario legislature, but she's doing it as an independent. So in, uh, in this interview, uh, the Coralius has said that, uh, I quote here, there's no party in the Ontario legislature that's defending the taxpayer, defending places of worship, defending small businesses, none promoting or protecting freedoms or democracy or fighting corruption. And the new blue party is aiming to, to fill that gap. So Joe, this was this was a specific instance, but I wanted to uh, to mention this to to bring us into our discussion today about uh, we're we're seeing a little bit more of this recently. Um, Maxim Bernier and the People's Party at the the uh, Canadian federal level, uh, the Wild Rose Party in Alberta, in the UK they have the the Heritage Party. There's a there's a bit of a resurgence in conservative movements in the past decade, and um, what what do we make of this? Is this is this something unique uh, in the history of the West where we're at now? Uh, is there some precedent that we could point to as the root of what uh, what is motivating these these conservative uh, groups? Well, I think at the present time, Ryan, what we're seeing uh, in these conservative sort of wing of the the electorate. And uh, in our political institutions, is a disillusionment with so-called conservatism, as it's uh, come to be expressed in the last thirty years or so. In the, uh, we can come back shortly, of course, to talk about the roots of what we mean by conservatism. But but just in terms of the immediacy of this question, the the difficulty. Uh, is that there has been a constant pull to the 
uh, the left. And don't forget, when we talk about left and right, we're talking about the originally this, the that language comes from the seating positions during the French Revolution, whether you which side uh, of the the building you were sat on. And so, as Christians, of course, we don't define ourselves in terms of being on the right or on the left of the agenda of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. We, we have to think thoroughly in, modern sort of terminology. Exactly. So we must hesitate and ne- never, we shouldn't ever identify the Christian political thought directly with the left or the right. It's Christian political thought. And I think actually the emergence of some of these new uh, parties is actually a kind of a recognition of that. You've got a fundamental problem with conservatism is that it, it's been pulled constantly to the left. So you could look at modern conservative movements and say, for the most part, they're just different shades of red. And so we're seeing, especially in the context where you've traditionally had something of really of a two or three party system. So you look at the UK, the two dominant parties would be the conservatives and the Labour Party with a sort of third, uh, the the, the um, Democratic Party being something of a third cog. Um, you and other... Sm- uh, a smaller player from Northern Ireland. And then you have in Canada, you've got the Liberals and the Conservatives and the NDP again, which is sort of a smaller uh, third cog. And then in the United States, you've got the Republicans and the Democrats. So in the English speaking world, we've tended to have a very narrow choice, uh, broadly defined in terms of this left right polarity, which has really ceased to be the case. I mean, you could have, you could in the past, maybe 50 years ago, have looked at the United States and the Republicans and the Democrats and said, well, they share all of these things very much in common. And there are a few nuances here and there uh, of a difference of, of, of emphasis. Now you're seeing a very distinct polarity emerge uh, in the United States. So their situation is a little bit different. Um, having said that, you see the same tendency even within republicanism to pull to the left. So even though right now you look at US politics, we see this polarization, you still see a tendency within republicanism to still pull leftwards. And I think the issue here that um, Belinda and her husband are uh, highlighting really, or illustrate their, their formation of this new party goes to illustrate, is that it's the the element that's left of conservatism for the most part in these two-party systems is really just a slightly more conservative economic or fiscal policy in terms of public spending. But the notion of a robust underlying socially conservative ideological vision, I don't like that word earlier, ideology, but let's say, let's call it a principled vision, has is really lacking now in some of the european countries you have uh don't you don't just have the two-party system you've got a multiplicity of parties so even where the country may actually be way to the 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 radical progressive end people can feel less disenfranchised politically because they feel like they've got genuine representation even distinctly christian representation take for example the netherlands that has some small christian parties whereas here we have this sort of these two big parties, a third cog, which is just further radical than the, even more radical than the, than the, the liberals. 
And you look at the, and, and uh, people like um, the People's Party, uh, this true blue idea, even the Heritage Party in England have been looking at the two-party system. They said, this is not, this is no longer really a principled conservative position. It's just a broad tent, uh, slightly less red environment. And because of the cultural drift, we're seeing the, the just beginnings, I would say, as you've said, in the last few years, we're seeing the beginnings of the emergence of some of these uh, newer parties that the media immediately wants to write off as hard left, uh, sorry, hard right sort of radicals um, because they can't even remember what the center looked like, never mind the right. So that's how these parties tend to be characterized. But I think we're going to see more of it because for those who still retain a sense of uh, a distinctly conservative vision that's rooted in more of a Christian understanding of the world socially, there just isn't a home anymore for those people really in the big tent conservative movement. Mm. Yeah, and Joe, when you're talking about uh, conservatives uh, trending toward this leftist drip, drift, it, it really reminded me of a uh, 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 a meeting we had recently with a, a local uh, conservative uh, politician. Um, and he was describing to us that the political situation in Canada for some time now has been the liberals will come into power and they'll move things uh, in a leftward direction. Uh, and then when they're out of power and the conservatives come in, they stop that leftward drift. Uh, but that's where it ends. They stop the drift They stay while they stay in power. And then when they're voted out and the liberals come back in, the leftward drift continues. Um, and I, I think the obvious question for, for most of us in Canada is why, why is that? Um, why do we not see conservative governments push back? Uh, why do we not see the moving our culture in the opposite direction toward uh, this more principled conservative position that you've been talking about, uh, a position that aligns um, with Christian political thought. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually a good, a good segue. It's a great observation and it's a good segue into trying to pair back to the, the religious roots of this whole question. So we, in a sense, started with the pragmatic or um, existential question right now of why the emergence of these new parties concerned with the, the, the lack of principled stand of the big tent conservative movement. I think what's important for us to do is to root our, our listeners immediately into the whole notion of what, what is political life really about? And, uh, are the sort of, um, structures of modern political life and modern political institutions, really neutral tools, um, or, or at root, are there religious uh, assumptions underlying them? And of course, one of the things that we're constantly doing is at the Ezra Institute is trying to help people see through the headline uh, uh, and through that headline get right back to the scriptural foundations that actually in the end underlie all of these headlines one way or another. So if we go back to the very beginning uh, and to the book of Genesis, we see that human beings are, by virtue of creation, culture makers. In fact, uh, as Herman Bavinck once summarized it, really, that's if if you if you subsume the term 
dominion under the term culture, you see that actually the purpose for which we were made in God's image is to create culture. And that's not verbatim, but that's the essence of what he was saying. Uh, so that the, the commission to our first parents as God's image bearers was to reflect the purpose and will of God to all of creation and turn creation into a God-glorifying culture. So political life is always an aspect of cultural life. And it's formative, so it's especially significant because it is, it, it's something that is formative of cultural life. And so, Ryan, you posed the question early on about whether this is um, the, the emergence of these new parties is a kind of a new thing. Um, and I would say that because of the, the, the recent, you know, the more recent drift of the culture, it is relatively new, at least I can't immediately think of a time, I mean, relatively speaking, modern democratic instant institutions are quite new in any case. So I would say in the, in, in the modern sense of the term, it is quite a new, relatively new development. I think it is a new development. But if we go back to the beginning, this, this whole idea of culture making, we have to understand political life as an aspect of that. It's an aspect of cultural life. And as we talk about again and again as an institute, culture, cultus, cult, worship, it's grounded in these fundamental religious pre-commitments. There's no escaping that. And um, it's very interesting when you look at the commission that's given to our first parents, it is first to tend and to keep. So there you have a conservative mandate, right? They are to tend and to keep the garden. There's something to be preserved. There's something to be kept. There's something to be maintained. Uh, there's something that's to be uh, continuously normed. But then there is also the aspect uh, of the commission to rule and subdue. And subduing something and ruling something uh, has this sense of uh, uh, governing, shaping, forming, so that you have both a what we might call a conservative and a progressive impulse there in right back in the book of Genesis. That what it means to really serve God is to conserve his order but to also make progress in terms of the norms of that order. So creation never came to our first parents, you know, shrink-wrapped and microwavable and, and all ready to go. There was the, the tending and the keeping. There was the maintenance of something. And then there was the ruling and subduing. There was to be a development of the resources, the potentiality of creation in terms of human culture and civilization. So there's both a conserving and a, uh, a principle of progress there, which I think we can subsume in theological terms, under the whole idea of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. To put it philosophically, you've got a principle of constancy and a principle of change right there back in creation, a principle of constancy and a principle of change. Uh, and actually, you cannot recognize change without a principle of constancy. So if we look out of our window of the Knox cellar here where we're recording our broadcast and we look at that tree, that big tree there, that tree is and it's interesting the expression we would use, it's constantly changing. Mm -hmm. Isn't that an interesting expression? Mm -hmm. That's a haiku. It's constantly, <laughs> it's constantly changing. Um, now we we recognize the change. It's it's autumn right now, it's the fall. So the leaves have been changing color, the leaves are gonna fall to the ground. That tree is always changing, but we know it's that tree because there's also something constant about it. So the a Christian political thought, Nathan, will have a um, a conserving element 
and also an element of progress, which, of course, William Wilberforce would have argued strongly as a politician in England that it was moral progress to abolish the slave trade. Uh, and so uh, when we wrestle with this question of why is it that we see this constant drag to the left, conservatives come in, they push a pause button, uh, and we pause the drift. And then when the conservatives go out, the drift continues, is that the principle of conservation is at work there in, in uh, conservatism. You conserve the status quo. But that actually, there is a lack of a principle of kingdom progress and change. So there's never any retaking of the ground. There's never a movement back towards a principled stance on these issues. And that's why it's very interesting when you look back to uh, let's take the British Prime Minister, former British Prime Minister David Cameron, uh, who was prior to Theresa May, who was prior to Boris Johnson. Um, David, it was under David Cameron's watch that um, homosexual marriage, in inverted commas, was ratified in the United Kingdom. And he made a speech in which he said, I am supportive of marriage, and therefore I'm recognizing uh, homosexual marriage not in spite of being a conservative, but because I'm a conservative. So, in other words, he wanted to, he, he liked the idea of a, tr a tradition. Uh, we conserve traditions. Marriage is a tradition. Maybe it's worth conserving. But there was no principled stance on the nature of marriage. So there was no pushback on the radical agenda. There was simply an acceptance of it that maybe by maybe by recognizing this, we're going to preserve this institution. And, and that's the fundamental weakness that you've identified, which is that conservatism alone doesn't help us. Uh, just because something has, emer has emerged, a tradition or a practice or, a, or, a, or um, an institution um, or, a, or a, a moral perspective or an economic perspective has emerged in the course of history doesn't in and of itself mean it's worth conserving. Uh, and the uh, and how do we justify what we want to conserve? What do we appeal to to justify what we actually want to conserve over against what need not be conserved? You need a principle that transcends it. And that's the lack. And you look at somebody like a Doug Ford, who probably has not cracked open the pages of a book on politics. Um, I'm, he's a good small businessman, I gather, um, but I suspect not a thinker. I don't get that impression. Uh, and I wonder what he really understands even of the, of the distinction between a, a, a Burkean conservatism that's, that's, that's sort of rooted in a Christian principle and a Lockean uh, sort of conservative individual rights, uh, sort of classical liberal um, perspective. Some of our contemporary politicians are so illiterate on these questions that even raising the question in some sense answers the question. Um, but th this is why I think, Nathan, we have this perpetual drift but it, but that in and of itself in and of itself helps us to go back to that scriptural principle of constancy and change of of kingdom progress so that we can always be making progress towards righteousness justice and truth and a recognition that actually undergirding all of these questions is not just some pragmatic principle of how many parties should we have and so on 
it's a fundamentally religious principle that's mm-hmm. at stake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, as you're saying all that, I just keep thinking of uh, principles and progress. And I mean, Justin Trudeau would say, well, I have principles. I'm making progress for this country. But again, here at the Ezra Institute, we're trying to get people to understand that there is a religious root to the foundational thinking of these different concepts that we're talking about. Um, and this this actually really leads well into another question uh, we had for you, Joe. But um, I mean, we know that politics is downstream from faith and from worldview, that there's something undergirding political thought. And so what, I, what I'm wondering right now is, is what, are the, what is the root cause here? Um, why don't we see true, conservative, true conservatism, uh, Christian political thought uh, in the political sphere? So something I personally wrestled with at the last federal election was, you know, why do I, as a Christian, not have the option to vote for someone who represents my interests and my political views that that are an outflow of the standard I possess. So I, we, we possess a standard, the word of God, and as a result of that standard, there are certain norms that we would like to see propagated in the political sphere. But when I look out at the political landscape, I don't see that option available to me. So what, what again, what is at the root cause of this? Why don't we have this um, Christian political voice available to to Christian thinkers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's a complex question. I would say that the Christian Heritage Party might say that they are that voice, um, and don't want to overlook them because they're so small. I think they've struggled with uh, support. I think they've struggled with maybe finding some of the right candidates and the right kind of leadership. But that really speaks to your question anyway, which is why aren't uh, groups like that more visible? Why don't they? Why aren't? Why don't they appear to be a viable option to the vast majority of of, of Christians? And uh, why isn't there a distinctly Christian political voice? And I think that takes us back really to the the problem with the whole two party scenario, the defining of if we go back the defining political moment the defining political event of the last uh, 300 years was the French Revolution. And the, the French Revolution was, in many respects, the, the political manifestation of the philosophy of the Enlightenment. It was the, it was the political manifestation of the idea that we don't really need God, what we need is human reason, and uh, we need a, a, a human government must not be thought of in terms of a relationship to divine authority. It must only be thought of in terms of a contractual relationship between free, autonomous, reasonable, rational individuals. That, that it was, the, in, in its essence, the French Revolution. Of course, there were the, the, the radical elements were enthroning reason as a goddess at Notre Dame, there was an attempt to abolish the seven-day working week. There was an attempt to reset the calendar to the date of the French Revolution. It was, uh, and Edmund Burke and others um, uh, on the um, on the European continent too um, recognized the the nature of the threat 
and saw it as something that wasn't just about France, that eventually it would, you know, I think Wilberforce said there's a brood of vipers. It's going to spill over to try and take over the whole world. And a Groen van Prinsterer, actually, in the Netherlands, uh, was very much aware, wrote about the uh, unbelief and revolution, recognized that the French Revolution was a political moment that was a fundamental expression of unbelief. Now, here's the problem. We could look back and say, well, the French Revolution is just this... This, we're not historians. Uh, you know, what's the significance of, you know, this this event such a long time ago? Well, it redefined the political map in Europe. Uh, it redefined the political, the nature of the political discussion in Europe. And really from then on, the question became, how do you define yourself in relationship to the revolution? Right? So it it was apart from a few uh, isolated voices like Wilberforce and Burke, like Groen van Prinsteren, the, the response was uh, th- uh, threefold. The first was, how do you stand in response to the revolution? I'm on board. And I'm on board with the radicals. Yes, let's remove heads. Let's have instant change. Let's have uh, immediate change because anything else is an impediment to history and to progress. So let's remove every obstacle and let's use our revolutionary fervor. And that's what we today would call the radical left. That's the product. The, the, today's product is the radical left. Then you've got those who say, uh, yes, uh, agree with the principles of the revolution, autonomy, independence, uh, reason, um, uh, uh, society and uh, as a contract, government as something that's purely uh, so, something that's socially constructed by man. Um, but let's not go too quick. You know, we want to we want to bring people with us. Let's not have heads rolling down the street the whole time. Let's go slow. Let's let's we need a smiling face to the revolution. Let's bring the changes in slowly. That's the modern center. And then you had those that said, well. Uh, we're not sure about this revolutionary movement because it seems to be dispensing too quickly with valued institutions. Uh, And so this whole thing needs to be slowed right down. We need to be careful that in our enthusiasm for uh, this newfound coming of age, this independence from God and everything else, that we uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and that we retain some of these uh, historic institutions that seem to have served human society so well. So let's conserve them. And that was the, the right. But nowhere in there, Nathan, really, was there a distinctively Christian response to the revolution. There was only full-bore revolution, smiling revolution, or a really slow revolution. Hence, you get this pause button experience that you've talked about, where you just push pause, slow it down a little, um, but it but we never really end up retaking any ground. So in the end, there are, there are three fundamental choices that we have politically. Popular sovereignty, which is the radical end of the the, 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 the revolution. State sovereignty, which might be conceived as the more centrist response to uh, the revolution, it's more it's more controlled, and God sovereignty. Uh, and the Christian, of course, stands for the third, 
and Edmund Burke and William Wilberforce were 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 occupying that period in English history that was was trying to cling on to that principle at the end of the the, the Great Awakening that that government is not simply a contract. I mean, the three axioms of of um, liberalism, especially as it's been defined since the 1920s. I mean, li- liberalism morphed. Maybe we can talk about this in a minute, a little bit more. But the sufficiency of reason, the idea of a perfectly free and equal individual, the idea that our obligations only arise from choice, those basic ideas totally dominate the political landscape today. They dominate the conservative landscape today, totally. So you ask what the problem is. The problem is, where is the sovereignty of God in the picture? And you know that we talk to We're Blue in the Face here about sphere sovereignty. And the principle of sphere sovereignty begins with the absolute sovereignty of God. So you cannot have a Christian, let's call it a Christian conservative order that's concerned to conserve God's norms, but also make progress in terms of the kingdom of God. You cannot really have what we would call a social conservatism without Christianity. And that's just been proven again and again and again. You cannot cling on to these norms, these objective standards, uh, this idea of constancy um, without Christianity. And so, we, you know, I mentioned that you can't detect change without constancy. People talk about change. We've got to change. We've got to move with the times. Yes, but if you want to make progress, you cannot abandon the norm. If constancy, constancy disappears, change is meaningless. Um, and so, this is the problem we have with uh, with modern political life. We are absolutely adrift in the flux of history. There's no resting point anywhere, and so conservatives are like you know, um, like antiquarians trying to cling on to old books and asking the library not to throw them out because some people still read them. Uh, but there's no actually principled view of why we still need those books in the library, right? That the, the, there's the, the truth content is significant and and important. We've got this radical idea of democracy, demos, kratos, demokratia in the Greek, which literally means people power or people authority. And so you don't have a Christian voice representing you that's uh, well-supported, prominent, clear, Nathan, because uh, we no longer recognize, frankly, even as Christians for the most part in the public space, the sovereignty of God. Joe, I note with approval that uh, you've got a book in here uh, ready to read from. Did you have uh, have something that you wanted to share from that uh, that book on the table? Well spotted, Ryan. This is uh, for government uh, toward a Christian view of authority. It's one of our monographs. I think I wrote this one last year. I think it came out last year. That's right. Yeah, late last year. Um, and and it's looking at this whole um, uh, principle of government. And um, there's a few a few things that. Uh, uh, are noted uh, in here about one of some of the differences between a, a sort of Christian view of government and the the liberal one, the liberal progressive one that we see today using that term in the, the very modern sense, not the classical sense. Um, Roger Scruton, the late English philosopher, actually said, English law existed not to control the individual, but to free him. And... Um, uh, we're increasingly seeing actually that the modern political life exists not to free us uh, to be obedient to God, to recognize his sovereignty in our lives, 
uh, but to actually um, control us. And uh, I think it's important just very quickly for our listeners as well, when we talk about liberal democracy over against conservatism, to identify that there was this, um, what we might call the liberalism of the French Revolution that we've talked about, the liberale, um, or liberal, uh, this whole um, radical notion of democracy. Then you had the German liberals who kind of brought in a second strain of it. These were the interventionists. They wanted state welfare. They wanted state intervention and everything. And then we had the sort of movement of the uh, the where John Locke was claimed by a modern movement of liberals, sort of post the nineteen twenties, to give us this vision of a of a classical liberal concerned with individual rights and freedoms and everything else. But of course, Locke fundamentally has the same problem. Uh, he jettisons really the word of God as the absolute standard, the sovereignty of God as the absolute standard, the image of God as fundamental, and he wants to have this abstract, perfectly free, uh, individual endowed with all these natural rights. So um, really, even that classical liberal tradition, I don't think rescues us. I think some of our American counterparts sometimes think that it can. I think they're wrong. I don't think classical liberalism actually um, can rescue us. I think that we have to go back to a Wilberforce uh, type of uh, an understanding of God's sovereignty and a distinctly Christian approach to uh, political life. The notion that that um, modern liberalism is really a procedural system that's fundamentally neutral, that basically exists to protect our privacy, our right to a private religion has proven totally hollow because everywhere this doctrine has gone, it has shredded the traditional uh, notions of freedom, the church, the family, and so forth. So I don't think we can uh, find a refuge there. But I, I had I picked up for government because I wanted to uh, quote uh, a Polish political philosopher who, uh, as somebody who's come out of um, the communist world, and he's looking at the Western liberal. Uh, liberal democratic tradition as it stands, is horrified by what he sees. Um, and he says this, and I, and I quote now, uh, Rizard Legutko, he says, what we have been observing over the last decades is an emergence of a kind of liberal democratic general will. Whether the meaning of the term itself is identical with that used by Rousseau is of negligible significance. Rousseau, of course, was... Uh, really the the intellectual fundamentally behind the, the French Revolution. He goes on, the fact is that we have been more and more exposed to an overwhelming liberal, liberal democratic omnipresence, which seems independent of the will of individuals to which they humbly submit and which they perceive as compatible with their innermost feelings. This will permeates public and private lives, emanates from media, expresses itself through common wisdom and persistently brazen stereotypes, through educational curricula from kindergarten to universities, and through works of art. This liberal democratic general will does not recognize geographical or political borders. The liberal democratic general will reaches the area that Rousseau never dreamed of, language, gestures, and thoughts. This will ruthlessly imposes liberal democratic patterns on everything and everyone, end quote. And, uh, you know, when you read that, and then you consider the state of conservatism today, you can see that really that liberal democratic general will 
just permeates the modern big tent conservative movement. Uh, it really is the same thing today. Um, and I think this is why we've started to see, and hopefully it's just the beginning, Ryan, the emergence of a certain amount of pushback on this, that this is not some religiously neutral, value-neutral tool of political life that exists to protect us all on our liberties and freedoms. It play, uh, patently is not. And it's incredible that anybody could still believe the sort of mythological idea that it really is. Uh, the the religious, fundamentally religious character of political life has really exposed itself in the last 25, 30 years, and perhaps especially in the last year, even with everything that's been going on. And I think it's a positive thing that people are beginning to ask the question, uh, you know, can we uh, continue to embrace this so-called neutral um, political space of a, of a liberal democratic system um, and pretend that it's religiously neutral, value neutral? Um, it's not. And um, I think some people are beginning to wake up to that fact. And we're beginning to recognize the cost, the price, and the loss involved. I mean, even when we talk about, you know, the West being built of democratic societies, that in of itself is a totally reductionist conception, but it's a radical conception. And people don't realize when they say, well, I'm part of a democratic society. I live in Canada. Actually, no, that's a very reductionistic idea. Society is not democratic. That whole idea is of democracy has taken on and extended itself uh, in our society, Dem democracy used to mean the way in which a free society elected its government. That you had a vote and uh, a government is elected uh, so that we have a, a process which we call democracy, which uh, elects a civil government. But society is not democratic. My family isn't democratic. I don't put. Uh, it to, the, to put the rules in our house to the vote of my children. The church isn't a democracy. Business isn't a democracy. So you see, even the way it seeped into our language, that actually, um, this is why John Dewey, uh, the progressive in the, uh, the last century in the United States, said that there is a fundamental contradiction between popular sovereignty and Christianity, the sovereignty of God. And he hated both the church and the family because he said they're anti-democratic, they're aristocratic. So our, even the language that we use, uh, we need to, as Christians, modify a little bit because, yes, we install our government through a democratic process, but society is much bigger than the state. But by saying democratic societies, what we're really saying is, is that we're statists. Right, that uh, that that really all of life functions in terms of a radical democratic principle, an egalitarian leveling principle, which of course, from a Christian standpoint, is totally unacceptable. We don't accept a ra radical egalitarian leveling principle in society, and I think some of these new uh, conservative groups recognize that, and they're trying to recover something of the inherited. Uh, traditions, and even if they're not distinctly Christian, like the Heritage uh, Party in in the in the UK, for example, um, or even the People's Party in Canada, they are 
they're recognizing there's a there's a vacuum, there's a huge loss somewhere here. They're not even always able to clearly identify what it is because they're not religiously self-conscious enough at times to recognize that this is fundamentally religious problem. Um, but they do recognize there is a massive cultural loss going on and they want to do something about it. So Joe, uh, this, this being the case uh, that uh, in the West, since the 20th century at least, we've gotten used to a, you know, a two-party system, uh, two and a half tops in Canada. But uh, we, So we've gotten used to the idea of strategic voting. Nate said uh, earlier, there's no party that really represents me, oh, but I really don't like the other guys, so I'm going to vote for, for the other party. But uh, along, along with the resurgence of some of these parties, we're seeing some more of a, some more of a, uh, vo- a conscience voting. You're, you're actually voting for what you may not think is a, uh, a viable party, so to speak, if that's the term I want, but somebody who, who actually does align with you and who would actually better represent you. So maybe, maybe as we close, can you just give a couple of thoughts for Christians as they enter the voting booth? Sure. I think that we have to get to the point now where we recognize that the strategy, as you said, strategic voting of the past of Christians um, in the Canadian context doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it ever worked, but uh, things have pulled so far to the left, uh, to the radical end of the spectrum, um, that this this sort of notion of, well, you know, let's just vote for the lesser of two evils, even though those two evils are both pretty significant, um, I don't think is a viable strategy going forward. And until we change that strategy, the people that we do um, want to vote for, whether they're independents or they're representing a smaller party, are never going to gain any traction. It, it only It's only at the point at which people feel that the sea change has been so great that they are now would rather vote with their conscience and vote for a smaller, much smaller party with maybe little hope of of government, or, or a um, an independent who does actually potentially have um, hope of of being in government, but is only is but is a relatively isolated voice. At least you've got a voice, and uh, I think at this point maybe some of us look longingly towards. Europe, where there are some more proportional representation in some of those contexts, uh, we have the system that we have. We have the electoral college system, and and um, and so on. And there are benefits to that. Uh, and we have this, f- for better or for worse, we've inherited this this two party system. But just because something is doesn't mean it should be that way. And I think the time has really come for us now to start thinking outside the box. That as we go into the booth, say to ourselves, look, does it what really matters most here? Uh, even if this independent that I'm voting for may not have power in caucus, uh, they represent my view, so I'm going to vote for them. Maybe this smaller party, maybe this new true blue party, let's say, for example, doesn't have a hope of, of, of power in the next X number of years. But by voting for it with my conscience, I'm, we're making a political statement and we're building a meaningful uh, a political resistance to the radicalism that now dominates the, the big tent parties. And I think, you know, we should always enter, we should always, we should vote. We should take that responsibility seriously. So I'm glad you say when we enter the booth, because we should, mm-hmm. we have to mm-hmm. take that responsibility. The beauty of um, the inheritance that we have politically is that we are the government in that sense. We're part of government. We interpret the law. We put civil government into office. 
we can remove them from office. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can make citizens arrests. We are interpreters of the law. We are, we do participate in our own government. So we should vote, but we should begin to think about what are the dictates of our conscience and the building of a meaningful um, resistance that takes this principle, biblical principle of constancy of change, of tend and keep, rule and subdue in terms of the culture of Christ seriously. Thanks a lot, Joe. Nate, thanks uh, both of you for being here. Thank you all for listening. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. You can get For Government that Joe referenced today. You can get uh, lots of other resources by going to ezrainstitute.ca. Thanks for joining us for Worldview Wednesday, and we'll see you next week. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time